copyright notice. The contents of this podcast, including intro music, are copyright Phantom Femme. The podcast artwork is copyright Isabeau of WAGproductions.org. This labyrinth, the Phantom of the Opera, in Eric's times, and ours. Hello everyone, and welcome at long last to episode 14 of In This Labyrinth. I am, as always, your host, Phantom Femme, and thank everyone for tuning back in. Thank you to any new listeners, and thank all everyone, new listeners and old listeners, uh, for your patience with the long hiatus. I truly didn't mean it to be quite that long. This uh, episode was supposed to be the June episode of the show, and here it is nearly the end of July. But what can I say? As all of you who've been listening know, I've been gearing up to move, and the move finally happened. The good news is the move finally happened. It is done. It is over. Thank God. Mom and I are in our new place now. Yay! So that's all over with, thank heaven. And now life can get back to what passes for normal. The downside, of course, is that I sort of got this episode half-recorded back in June, and then the move (laughs) broke loose, had to get really into packing and sorting and frantically taking loads to Value Village and getting everything trussed up and ready, and then the move itself happened, and yeah. So it's really good to finally be able to get back to work on the show and to finally get this episode out, and again, Huge thanks to everyone for your patience with this whole long, drawn-out process. So, this is episode 14 of the show, as I mentioned. And as I mentioned in the previous couple of episodes, it is also the one-year anniversary of this show. Yay! Wow! Yeah! As of now, well, actually, as of last month... In This Labyrinth has now been on the air for one whole year. So that's really exciting, and I think worth a bit of celebrating. And it's also really exciting how, in that time, the show has literally gone from zero to my just putting it out in the world and having no idea if anyone but me would be interested, uh, to now over 1,500 downloads. So... Wow! Thank you all. That is awesome. That is amazing. And it's just been 
truly fantastic and exciting and really thrilling to watch the show grow, to watch the listenership grow uh, over the year that it's been on the air. So, yeah, thank you all. And wow, very cool, very exciting, very awesome. And uh, of course, uh, keep it up and spread the word. If you enjoy the show, if you like what you hear, if you find it interesting, by all means, you know, tell your friends, tweet it, share the Facebook posts, leave a rate and review on iTunes. That would be super helpful because that will boost its searchability in their mysterious algorithms and hopefully help more people find the show. Because, yeah, it would be awesome to see the show grow even more now that it's into its second year of life. And as I mentioned a couple of episodes back, I had hoped to do some kind of event, either live or online, for the one-year anniversary of the show. That, unfortunately, isn't going to happen because with the move and all, I just don't have the capacity or the money right now to pull something like that together. But hopefully next year for the second year podiversary of the show, uh, hopefully, I'm plotting that already. But in the meantime, for this, the first anniversary of the show, I do want to at least do a little something special for the occasion. So a little trivia contest. I actually sort of did this way back in episode three, but I never got any replies, so I thought I'd try it again for the one-year anniversary. So here goes. I'm going to put two questions out there. Answer either one or both correctly, and you can get a poster version of the podcast artwork, of the gorgeous uh, podcast artwork designed by Isabeau de Valeralba. So here goes. Question one. Episodes two and three were entitled P.O.T.O. and The Trouble with Normal. Now, the trouble with normal part is a reference to the work of a certain very famous Canadian singer-songwriter. Who am I referring to? And now question two. Back in episode three, when I was talking about the ALW Phantom's Lair, I used the phrase, quote, it's a space where the beauty of music and creative self-expression is more important than the beauty of faces, unquote. Now, that's a paraphrase of, or maybe better said, a riff on, a quote from a specific version of Phantom, and hint, no, it's not ALW, LaRue, or Susan K. So which version of Phantom is it a reference to? So those are the two questions. And as I said, answer either one or both correctly. And I will send you a poster version of the podcast artwork. So you can tweet your answer to at ITL Podcast, or you can leave it on the Facebook page, which is in this labyrinth, the Phantom of the Opera in Eric's Times and Ours, just like the title of the show. Or you can send it by old-fashioned email to inthislabyrinth at yahoo.com. And I want to make this non-competitive, so everybody who answers 
one or both of the questions correctly will get a poster. It may take a while to get you yours because depending on how many answers I get, I may need to have more of them made. But never fear, if you answered one or both of the questions correctly, then you'll get one. So hopefully that's something just a bit fun for all of you guys out there to celebrate the one-year anniversary of the show. Okay, so because last month was both the one-year anniversary of the show and, of course, Pride, I thought I'd combine and honor both in this episode by talking about what the original ALW stage musical, the original Lloyd Webber stage musical, does with queer crip desire, with queer crip sexuality, and some of the interesting possibilities it opens up for thinking about and exploring that. Before we get into that, though, some definitions might be a good idea, because some of you might be wondering what the hell I'm talking about when I say queer crip desire or queer crip sexuality. And I've given definitions for these terms on my glossary page on the podcast website that I'll give the URL for at the end of the show, but still, It might be useful for me to recap them, so let me do that before we get into the actual discussion, just to make sure that we're all on the same page and that I'm not totally losing anybody. Now, first off, though, I hasten to say that these are my definitions. These are how I am using these words in this discussion, and it's how I understand these terms, these words based on what I've learned over the years from my queer, disabled activist and academic colleagues. But they by no means have a standardized or anything like universally accepted definition and use out there, even among queer and disabled scholars and activists, much less in the broader world. So you'll definitely find people out there who totally disagree with my definitions of these words and think I'm full of shit. So bear that in mind. And also, all the scholars and activists who, from whose work I have synthesized these definitions over the years are listed in my uh-huh, still-to-be-repaired, sorry about that, Uh, links and resources page on the podcast website. All the bibliographic information is given for the book resources, and the URLs are there for the online resources too, but you might have to copy and paste them into your browser's search bar thingy because I'm not sure the links actually work. I'm having some access issues with the edit field that allows me to fix that. I've written Fireside, my hosting service, about it, but they still haven't fixed that so that I can use it. Which is why it's still not fixed a year later, which is really annoying. I need to bug them about that. And I will bug them about that just for the principle of the fact that it should be accessible and it's not. However, as a brief aside, While I will definitely do that, it may ultimately just be more efficient for me to get someone cited to come in and use the edit feature and fix it for me. That might actually get it 
done and fixed and up and working a lot faster. Whereas waiting around while I play support ticket tag with Fireside could take a while. But that's where you listeners come in again. If I may take a brief moment aside to plug my Patreon, which is www.patreon.com slash phantom That's P-H-A-N-T-O-M-F-E-M-M-E. Because having someone cited come in and fix the links and resources page, it's not difficult work, technically, but it's going to be tedious work, and it's probably going to take a few hours. At least it's going to take a good couple of hours unless they can figure out a more efficient way to do it than I can that doesn't involve a whole lot of finicky copying and pasting. I hope so. I hope they can. It would be awesome if they can just work with the parts that are supposed to be the links and not have to bother with the rest of it, because the rest of it should be fine. But as I said, and as you can probably tell from that, it's going to be somewhat finicky, tedious, probably fairly boring work, and it would be nice to be able to offer the person who's doing it a little something, at the very least, you know, treat them to coffee or pizza and beer, and preferably give them at least a little honorarium for doing that work. Because it is work, and I'd like to recognize it and compensate it as fairly as I can. So if any folks are in a position to be able to contribute, donate to my Patreon to help me with that, that would be super great because this summer is really tight between the move. I'm so glad that's done. And being between teaching assistantships. So yeah, it would be great if even if I have to you know, pay that out of pocket, if it comes back, that would be super helpful. So yeah, if folks are, I understand totally if people aren't because God knows I've been there too. But if you are in a position to donate to the Patreon and help me cover stuff like that, that would be super helpful. It would really help make the show and the podcast website the best that they can be. And, okay, end of PSA, and now back to our regularly scheduled content. Sorry about the long digression, but I felt that that was important, and talking about the links and resources page gave me a good opportunity to go into that, because that's... It's been bugging the hell out of me that that's not fixed yet, and I'd really like to get it actually fixed and working. In the meantime, though, back to those definitions. So, first of all, queer. When you hear queer, you probably think of LGBTQ, the LGBTQ community, and that's its most common usage today. It's become a kind of catch-all, umbrella, kind of shorthand way of identifying oneself amidst all that alphabet soup. And it's become an umbrella term covering gay and lesbian, transgender, other gender non-binary identities, bisexual, pansexual. So it's become kind of an umbrella term covering that whole range of experiences and identities. And it's a reclaimed word. It was originally a slur, a derogatory term used against gay and lesbian people and transgendered and 
etc. if people even knew about them back in the day. But then as the LGBT community came out and became a community and became a political, a politicized community fighting for its their our rights and identities and experiences, many LGBTQ activists decided to take that word back, to reclaim it and say, you're using this as an insult against us, but we're going to claim it as a term of pride, as a way of describing ourselves because we're proud of who we are and we don't care if you think that it's bizarre or strange or whatever. Very much in the way that sci-fi and fantasy and gamer communities have reclaimed the words nerd and geek. However, I want to use the word queer in an even slightly broader sense because before it got so strongly linked with LGBTQ identities and experiences and communities, the word queer simply meant weird or strange or uncanny. And in fact, when it was in the back in the days when it was used as a slur, that was the sense in which it was being used. It was being used to label gender presentations and sexualities, sexual identities that were thought of as deviant. It was used to label them as strange, as uncanny, as weird. And it's those connotations of the word queer that I want to reclaim here because I feel like they often get forgotten in its modern contemporary usage. And yet that sense of the word queer works so well for phantom. It works so well for the kind of eroticism that you see in the ALW phantom. Because while the sexuality, the eroticism in phantom isn't obviously LGBTQ, it's definitely non-normative and it's definitely linked with the weird, the strange and the uncanny. And so to talk about queerness in Phantom, I feel like you need to broaden out the definition of the word to include and to take back and reclaim those older connotations. Because so much of the sexuality and eroticism in the ALW Phantom is about exactly reclaiming the space of the uncanny as a space of power rather than as a space of shame as a space of empowerment and even something approaching pride rather than as a pl as a space of shame and that's expressed most strongly in the lyrics to music of the night act 1 scene 5 although as will surprise none of you by now i would argue that it's also there in less obvious but perhaps even more powerful ways in the title song as well act 1 scene 4 and that then brings us to the word crip. Like queer, and in fact, in some ways modeled on the way that the word queer has been taken back by the LGBTQ community, crip is a former slur that's been reclaimed, retooled, and repurposed as a term of pride, as a self-identification of pride by many, though by no means all, disability activists and scholars. And as you might have guessed, it's a short form of the word crippled that used, I don't know whether this happens so much anymore, but it used to be used, especially as I understand it, 
by schoolyard bullies to mock people with certain kinds of visible, physical, or cognitive or intellectual disabilities. So, for example, kids in wheelchairs, kids who use crutches, and or kids whose intellectual or cognitive disabilities affected their gait, affected the way they walk, affected the way they move in very visible ways. But then, like with the word queer, and as I said, very much kind of modeled on it, in the 90s and maybe as far back as the 80s, disability activists and scholars started taking back this word crip and began naming themselves by it as an act of empowerment and began turning it instead into a way, turning turning using that word instead into a way of claiming and expressing and practicing pride in our disabled bodies and identities and experiences. Now, as I said before, it's by no means universal, certainly not all disabled activists and scholars and definitely not all disabled people use it that way. But nevertheless, in especially the last decade or so, it's become quite widely used, again, as I said, especially in disability activism and scholarship circles. So especially in more politicized elements of the disabled community. Because like queer, Crip is a political term. There's probably folks out there who would disagree with me about that for both queer and crip, but yeah, I would say they are both political terms because they indicate, their use indicates not only pride and empowerment, but a willingness to think about, to think through the political implications of being disabled, of being LGBTQ, the political implications and possibilities of understanding heteropatriarchy and ableism not as immutable eternal laws of nature, but as human-made, human-constructed social and political systems that can be changed. And it's in this latter sense, this politicized sense, that the word crip has really been widely embraced by many, if though not all, disability scholars and activists, regardless of whether they actually experienced it as a slur or not. Because not all of us did. There were others, but that wasn't necessarily one of them. So how does this all relate to desire and sexuality in Phantom? Well, for that, I think we need to look at another way of using both the words queer and crip, which is as verbs, to queer something or to crip something. And at their simplest, both of those verbs, to queer something and to crip something, mean to shift the focus, to look at something, a story, an idea, etc., from the point of view of that which is normally excluded. So to look at something from the perspective of the gender or the sexual orientation or the ability that is normally excluded or sidelined or disappeared altogether or framed as the other. And instead, to center that perspective 
and give it a voice and really to explore what the world looks like or sounds like or feels like from that normally excluded and othered perspective. And this is partly, of course, to empower people who live in and experience those othered and excluded positionalities, but it's also, especially in literature and film and theater, done to perform what science fiction scholars call cognitive estrangement. That is, to make the world that the reader or viewer or audience member is experiencing look and feel weird and different and not like they expect in order to kind of jolt them out of their comfort zone and make them think and make them not take the way things are for granted because it's not going to be what they expect. And I think this verb form of queering and cripping is what the ALW Phantom, the Lloyd Webber Phantom <clears throat> original stage musical, does absolutely brilliantly because it draws you in and seduces you, yes, I use that word intentionally, into looking at love and desire from the phantom's point of view. It gets you to look at how love and desire look and sound and feel, etc., from the point of view of someone whose body is not, whose body and mind are not, normatively considered desirable or, or an appropriate object of love and desire. And I think it also draws you in to think about what love and desire might look like to Christine. And that's important because normatively, female desire, female sexuality is figured as passive. All she has to do is accept a man's proposal. And yet, part of the whole point of Phantom is that she has to become active. She has to know her own mind and her own heart and her own desire and own it. Whether you go with canon and imagine that she does actually go off with Raul in the end, or you choose to get IMO even more subversive and imagine her loving and desiring the Phantom, either way, she has to become active and choose it and own it. And so those, the outsider, the body and mind who is not normally considered desirable or an appropriate love object, and the female-gendered person who has to become active in their desire and in their choosing, these become the primary perspectives, the primary points of view in the Lloyd Webber Phantom, rather than the putative hero Raoul in his quest to rescue the damsel in distress. He's kind of a secondary character, and his point of view, you don't get much of his point of view. The focus is really on the phantom's love and desire for Christine and Christine's choice. So that already decenters the normative heteropatriarchal ideal of the white, able-bodied, youthful, cisgendered couple. It's still there in the stage time between Christine and Raoul, but that normative ideal has been kind of pushed out of the spotlight. It's no longer taking center stage, as it were. And 
I'll give a breakdown of everybody's allotted stage time in the blog post for this episode, so you can all see what I mean. Another thing that's really radical from a queer crip perspective in the ALW Phantom, though, is the way that the Phantom's sexuality and desire are portrayed. Because in the Western artistic tradition, at least, portrayals of disabled character sexualities, and I'm assuming this goes for deformed slash disfigured as well, although interestingly enough, I haven't actually seen any specific study on that, like I have seen around disability. Though, if any of my academic colleagues out there who are listening do know of any work that's been done on that, feel free to let me know, pass it on. That would be really cool. I'd be really interested to read that. But in any case, disabled people's sexuality tends, in the Western artistic tradition at least, to be portrayed in either one of two ways. And these two ways frequently fall along lines of class, race, and gender. So one way is to portray a disabled person or character as a kind of perpetual child, innocent, cherubically adorable, and asexual. And this is especially likely if the person or character in question is white, middle to upper class, and female, or any combination thereof. Or alternatively, a disabled character or person's sexuality might be portrayed as the exact opposite. They might be portrayed as sort of brutish, animalistic, hypersexual, and not able to control their sexual urges, not having enough intelligence to control their sexual urges. And not surprisingly, this type of portrayal is more likely for characters or people who are male and or poor and or of color. Though, that being said, there's also a long and lamentable tradition in Western media of portraying black women that way, whether disabled or not. And before going any further, I should say that, of course, there's absolutely nothing wrong with being asexual, being someone who just doesn't experience sexual desire that way or for that matter, with being a slut, as long as you're ethical about it and honest with your partners and respect consent. What's problematic about these traditions of portrayal of disabled people's sexuality is that they presume, right? They presume that if you're disabled, your sexuality will fall into one of these two stereotypes, really, that's what they are, and can be and that it can be nothing else just as they make similar assumptions based on race and class and of course we all know that's baloney right disabled people's sexualities run the full spectrum from asexual to slut to straight to gay to trans to kink and everything in between just like anybody else's just like black people's or latin people's or any other type of people's do right? What's so radical about the ALW Phantom, the Lloyd Webber Phantom, then, from a queer crip perspective, is that it resorts to neither one of these stereotypes in portraying the Phantom's sexuality. 
It certainly doesn't portray him as an innocent, asexual, perpetual child cherub. But neither, at least as I read the original staging of the musical, does it portray him as a brute, quote-unquote, animal monster whose sexuality is out of control. Instead, it portrays the Phantom as a human being capable of feeling love and desire just like any other human being, and as a human being quite capable of romance and seduction. And if he's shown trying to win Christine in some questionable and, later in the musical, even wrong and inappropriate ways, that's clearly shown as being because of his deep experience of and fear of rejection and of his mind kind of snapping because Christine's rejection was one too many, one more than he could take, not because of his quote-unquote nature. And this is clearly shown in Act 2, Scene 9, The Final Lair, when, after Christine shows him compassion, he's able to find that humanity again that we saw in the title song and music of the night, Act 1, Scenes 4 and 5, He's able to find that humanity again in the final lair, at the end of the final lair, and do the right thing and let her go. And so he's very much shown as having had his ability to act on his love and desire in a healthy way, warped by his experience of exclusion and prejudice, rather than his sexuality and desire simply being inherently unhealthy because he's deformed. And indeed, as I've talked about, as I've argued in a number of previous episodes, the Lloyd Webber Phantom, the LW Phantom, gives glimpses in Act 1, Scenes 4 and 5, the title song and music of the night, of what a healthy, vibrant sexuality might look like for the Phantom and his partner, whether Christine or otherwise. And because it's shaped by who he is, his love of art and music, especially music, and, yes, his experience as a deformed-slash-disfigured person, that sexuality contains, as I've discussed before, elements of role-play, elements of dominance and submission. I read The Phantom very much as a dom. And it involves trying to forge his trying to forge an alternative to the able-bodied, in this case, quote-unquote, whole-faced, cis-heteropatriarchal ideal of the romantic couple that excludes him. And while those hints are left as just hints, nevertheless they are there, and as I've discussed before, they form a powerful foil or counter to the final lair. And, as I said before, they provide a space to imagine what a healthy, vibrant, honest, consenting sexuality and sexual relationship, romantic relationship, might look like for the Phantom. At least, I find they do. And what's radical about that portrayal of the Phantom's sexuality in the ALW musical is that it's probably impossible to overstate how rare such a portrayal is in mainstream media. In fact, I cannot think off the top of my head of another piece of mainstream media, book, theater, movie, etc., 
that portrays a disabled or disfigured character's sexuality that way. Except maybe the movie The Sessions, but that's the closest I can think of. Now, granted, I'll be the first to admit that I don't really keep up with mainstream media that much, just because of time and uh, often lack of description on movies, etc. But I follow a lot of disabled artists and activists who do. And as I said, I could probably find similar portrayals of disabled sexuality to what's in the ALW Phantom if I went and searched for it, but certainly off the top of my head, I can't think of another piece of mainstream media, except, as I said, possibly the movie The Sessions, from what I've heard about it, and I haven't seen it yet myself, that does such a good, thorough, and rich job of portraying a disabled or deformed-slash-disfigured character's sexuality as fully human and potentially entirely healthy if they were free from prejudice and exclusion. Now, of course, there's been a lot of really awesome work by disabled artists and activists trying to portray disabled people's sexuality that way and counteract the stereotypes that I talked about earlier, but that work doesn't usually make it into the mainstream. So, yeah, it's very rare for a piece of art or media by a non-disabled person and or one that's so mainstream to do such a sophisticated portrayal of a disabled or deformed character's sexuality, especially back in the 80s when Phantom was first produced. In addition to all this, those hints and glimpses that the musical gives in Act 1, Scenes 4 and 5 of a vibrant and healthy sexuality for the Phantom also kind of dare the audience to imagine the Phantom as a lover, as a viable object of desire, partner, romance, etc. And that's very daring, because the stereotypes that I discussed earlier of either the asexual perpetual child cherub or the out-of-control brute monster animal exist and function culturally to label disabled and deformed-slash-disfigured people as out-of-bounds romantically and sexually, as not appropriate lovers, romantic partners, sexual partners, etc. So Phantom, in giving those hints and glimpses and, as I said, kind of daring the audience to imagine such a relationship— breaks that taboo. And this is why it's so powerful when, and so important that, Christine is portrayed as genuinely attracted to both men and to have, and as having to make a serious choice between them. Because that frames the Phantom as a serious contender for Christine's love and desire, as a serious candidate for her love and desire, rather than just a foil for Raoul to rescue her. And that further invites or even dares the audience to imagine what might happen if her heart had gone in a different direction, if she'd made a different choice. And uh, 
if half the fanfic, more than half, really, of the fanfic out there is anything to go by, even before, in fact, long before the Jarek, before the 2004 film, lots of audience members, lots of fans took up that dare and continue to do so and are quite able and willing to imagine the Phantom as a lover, as a romantic partner, as a sexual partner, deformity slash disfigurement and all. And indeed, many fanfics that I can think of have expanded on that challenge, that dare, to even imagine the much more deformed slash disfigured LaRue and Susan K phantoms as perfectly viable, perfectly appropriate objects of love and desire and partners. And although way too many of these fanfics, in fact, all of them that I can think of off the top of my head, have the Phantom and Christine or her replacement new character settle down and get married and try to replicate the heteronormative family, it still represents a significant challenge to the taboo against disabled and deformed slash disfigured people as appropriate love objects and romantic partners, etc. And it gets even more interesting now that there's begun to be a small but growing body of slash and or gender-bent fanfics. So fanfics that imagine the Phantom and or other canon and or new characters in queer relationships. Obviously, often modern retellings, but I've seen at least one really excellent period piece, too. Which is damned impressive, given the authors having to try to accurately represent queerness at a time when you couldn't talk about it or express it openly because it was A, very socially frowned on, and B, outright illegal. So, kudos to the author. I can only imagine how difficult... That must have been to research. But from everything I can tell, and again, granted, I'm not a historian, they seem to have done an excellent job with it. But yeah, what's exciting about fics like that, fanfics like that, is that they more directly, perhaps even explicitly, bring together queerness with breaking the taboo against disabled-slash-deformed-slash-disfigured people as sexual and romantic partners. And that's interesting and powerful because that taboo has been internalized, is still internalized, even in a lot of queer communities, too. And so reworkings and reimaginings like that present a challenge on both fronts. They present a challenge to the able-bodied heteropatriarchy, obviously, but they also present and represent a challenge to those of us who are trying to dismantle and resist and build alternatives to the hetero, to the able-bodied heteropatriarchy to kind of see and confront where we've nevertheless internalized its values and norms and ideals. Or at least they have the potential to do that. But even apart from these explicitly queer reworkings of the Phantom story, I would suggest that the very presentation of the Phantom as a imaginable, 
conceivable, plausible lover, sexual partner, romantic partner, etc., is in and of itself not only very crip, which I hope I've shown how it is, but also very queer. Because even though it's presented in the ALW musical as desire between a man and a woman, it still presents a mode or a flavor of desire that is outside of, and I would argue, a challenge to the cis, able-bodied, heteropatriarchal norm. Especially given the way music of the night presents the phantom's love and desire explicitly, as at least in part about trying to create an alternative space to carve out a little space of freedom from that norm that oppresses him because he knows he'll never fit it. That's why he hates Raoul so much. He knows he'll never be that, the quote-unquote unblemished, quote-unquote, heteropatriarchal ideal of manhood. So he has to carve out and create a space, an alternate space, where he, where his body-mind can be validated and celebrated sexually, romantically, and artistically, creatively. And that's where he's drawn on the association, the cultural association of his body and mind and face with the uncanny, with the weird, with the haunted or haunting, with the strange, and flipped that around and embraced it as a source of empowerment, as a way of celebrating his life and experience, or at least validating his life and experience and all that he's been through. And as I've argued in previous episodes, you get hints of what that might look like lived out and, you, and sound like lived out in the title song, and you hear it more explicitly put into words in the lyrics to Music of the Night. And that attempt to create a space of validation and celebration for a non-normative kind of desire and body-mind and way of being in the world is, as I said, not only very crip, but also a very queer thing to do. Now, under the weight, under the blow of Christine's rejection after she unmasks him for the first time without his consent, he loses that glimpse of freedom. He loses his tenuous hold on that alternative space. And boy, isn't that true to life. And so the lair turns from this alternate creative space of, quote, the seat of sweet music's throne, unquote, act one, scenes four into five, to, quote, the dungeon of my black despair, unquote, and, quote, the prison of my mind, unquote, act two, scene eight. And the wedding dress also turns from what could be read as a very queer and also kink playing with, riffing on bridehood and marriage in act one, scene five, music of the night, to a symbol in act two, scene nine, the final lair, of his desperation to squash himself, bash himself into the heteropatriarchal norm, even though he knows he can't fit it. Because he's come to believe by that point that that's the only way to quote-unquote 
win until Christine's compassion shows him another way. And in fact, shows them all another way that none of them realized was possible before. A way that's not about winning, but about seeking justice and doing what's right. And that desire to move away from heteropatriarchal competition toward justice and compassion is also very much an ideal of queer activism, queer movements, and of crip activism, and also, and perhaps somewhat ironically with regard to the way many people perceive phantom, of feminism, of feminist movements. Though admittedly, we queer, crip, feminist folks don't always succeed in living up to those ideals as well as we would like to, sadly. But that's where we have to learn to have compassion for ourselves and others when we screw up and to get back up and keep trying and keep working on learning to recognize where we've unknowingly internalized the very values we're trying to change and get back our glimpses of freedom and possibility when we lose them. We need to work on learning, as it were, how to get back to the space of the title song and music of the night when we've been to the space of the final lair. Because the descent to the final lair in no way invalidates or cancels the glimpses of freedom and possibility that you get in the title song and music of the night. It just means you have to figure out how to get back there. And I would argue that's a lot of what we do as fans. That's certainly what a lot of fan art and fan fiction are about one way or another. And for me, at least, that's what activism is about, too. Whether it's activism explicitly related to disability or whether it's about other human rights, social justice issues, or for that matter, the environment. And come to think of it, it's a great deal of what this podcast is about, too. Interesting. So I hope you've all enjoyed this discussion. I know it got perhaps a little heavy and academic-ish. What can I say? I'm a bit of a nerd that way. But still, I hope you all found it interesting, and I hope it gave everyone out there lots to think about. And uh, sorry it took so long to get into the actual discussion, but there was a lot of sort of front material to cover, and I really wanted to put the little contest thing out there for you all. And I wanted to not just plug the Patreon, but sort of explain a little bit of what I'm going to use it for. I thought it was important, if I'm asking you guys for donations, to just kind of let listeners in on some of that. But yeah, sorry that held up getting into the actual discussion. Nevertheless, I do hope everyone out there enjoyed this one-year podiversary episode and Pride episode, and I hope everyone out there had a really great and happy Pride, too. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to make it out to Toronto Pride this year because of being right in the middle of the move, but I hope at least some of you all were able to make it out to your local Pride celebrations, and I hope everyone who did had a really great and safe time at them. One of these years, I'd love to see a people with disabilities contingent. I mean, I've seen a blind contingent, which was amazing and awesome, but I'd love to see a, like, 
cross-disability, pan-disability contingent at Pride, and or a Phantom Fans contingent. I'd love to see that, obviously, here at Toronto Pride, but I'd also love to hear about it, see about it, at any other Pride celebration out there. So, yeah, hopefully that's something that will be made to happen one of these years. That would be awesome. Anyway, I hope you've all enjoyed this episode and found it interesting and thought-provoking. And to borrow a phrase from a fellow podcaster of one of my current favorite shows, I would love to hear how this episode, or any other episode for that matter, is landing for you all out there. And as I said earlier, you can tweet at the show at ITL Podcast, and of course you can follow the show on Twitter at ITL Podcast. You can also like or follow and leave comments on the Facebook page, and or, hopefully and, join the Facebook group. And both the page and the group are the title of the show, In This Labyrinth, The Phantom of the Opera in Eric's Times and Hours. You can also leave comments on the episode page for this or any other episode on the podcast website, which is https colon slash slash in this labyrinth dot fireside dot fm. And of course, you can rate and review on iTunes and I think on Google Play as well. And that would be very awesome as it would help boost the show and help more people find it. And last but not least, you can send an old-fashioned email to inthislabyrinth at yahoo.com. And as I said, I would love to hear your thoughts on the show or on things I've talked about on the show. Or, of course, if there are things you'd like me to talk about on the show, things, topics you'd like me to cover, please, by all means, send me those as well. And or... If you'd like to actually come on the show and do an interview, that's something I would definitely love to do more of. I don't quite, unfortunately, have the capacity to do long-distance interviews yet, sadly, but I am working on that, and hopefully I will have that up and running soon. So even if you're not local to the Toronto area, get in touch with me anyway if you'd like to come on the show and do an interview, and we can work on making it happen. And of course, if you are local to the Toronto area, then there are definitely ways we can work around some of my lingering technical limitations. And yeah, doing more interviews, talking to different folks in the fan community is definitely something I want to do more of and something I really want to make a regular part of the show. So thanks again, everyone, hugely for tuning in to this episode and to the show as a whole. And also thanks hugely for your patience with all the scheduling wonkiness. And hopefully now that the blasted move is done, Things will be a little less wonky scheduling-wise. And, of course, I hope you'll all tune back in for next episode. I haven't entirely decided what the next episode is going to be yet, but I'm leaning toward talking about the Lawrence Connor production, the current North American, U.S. and Canada tour that's been restaged and redesigned. 
So hopefully that's something else that you will all find interesting. So do stay tuned for that, and hopefully I will be able to start having episodes out in a more timely fashion again. So the plan is to have that next episode out sometime in mid-August, although I'm not sure exactly when it'll be out. So yeah, stay tuned for that. Thanks again for tuning in and for your patience, and have a great and phantom-filled time. Till next episode! Disclaimer. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the presenters and do not reflect the views of the host, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Cameron McIntosh, the Really Useful Group, or any other person or entity. In addition, this podcast is not in any way affiliated with Andrew Lloyd Webber, the Really Useful Group, Cameron McIntosh, or with any other person or entity involved in the production of any version of Phantom.